The Shakespeare Society and PlayShakespeare.com presents Shakespeare Talks. Shakespeare Talks. Hi, welcome. Uh, we're sitting here with Lila Robbins, uh, who recently played Cleopatra at Theatre for a New Audience's production of Antony and Cleopatra, directed by Darko Trezniak. Welcome, Lila. Hello, Michael. Thank you very much for doing this. My pleasure. I'm going to be asking people, as we build up this series of podcasts, particularly about people's approaches to the language and how it differs from their approach to other kinds of roles and other kinds of theater. Um, but I want to start early uh, in your relationship with Shakespeare. You've done quite a bit of it professionally and at school, I imagine. Mm -hmm. And but I wanted to talk, ask you about an early any early memories of Shakespeare that you have <laughs> that uh, have stayed with you over the years. What are your what's your earliest memory? Uh, um, I can't remember the specific uh, play that they had done, but there was this traveling troupe that came through. St. Paul, Minnesota, where I grew up, and I lived very near a, a park, and they set up their big trailer that popped open into a stage, all these wonderful people doing extraordinary things, and I was completely mesmerized. It's one of my first theatrical memories as well, and of course ran backstage and needed to have everybody's autograph. I think that's when I discovered my autograph book was with the cast <laughs> of this particular play. Of course, I don't remember what play it was, but... Uh, well, we can uh, consult the autograph book. Yes, maybe some of these people have gone on. <laughs> um, and I want to ask you about your early training in Shakespeare. Do you, who, yeah. who, you went to Yale Graduate School. I went to Yale, and our verse teacher was a gentleman named David Hammond, right? who um, I think have, has been teaching down at Chapel Hill as of late. And um, is my first exposure to really understanding that there was a whole technique involved. I didn't really know that. And... Uh, you know, finding the iambic pentameter and and also uh, learning about how when the uh, scansion changes, how it starts to affect you emotionally. So he was my first introduction to really um, analyzing it and pulling it apart in a way that was helpful. Right. Uh, then I also remember very vividly when I did Merchant of Venice at the Public, we had a, our, our, our speech and voice coach was Ralph Zito, mm -hmm. who I believe is still teaching at Juilliard. Correct. And he taught me a lot. We had a lot of private sessions just working on Portia. And he taught me a lot about the text as well in a really eye-opening way. It was one of my first times doing Shakespeare professionally. So it was very helpful to me. And that was with uh, Barry Edelstein directed that production, Yes. Right? Uh -huh. And I know that he has very strong opinions about sticking to the verse versus wandering uh, right. or being free with it. Right. He and and Barry's written a book now that I've I've gotten, which I think is a really great um either for a beginner to look at or even a refresher course for a professional. I found that a lot of the stuff he was writing about was was great to be reminded of again. Mm -hmm. And I think he has a real system there that's very valid. And does it feel I mean, does it feel different than playing I know that you you're going to be playing Blanche, mm -hmm. but uh from playing, a, a, say, a contemporary Amer American play, how does it feel different? Uh, do you feel obliged to stick with the verse? Does it, do 
Do you feel an extra responsibility vocally or metrically? Um, vocally, I mean, you have to sort of stay in shape because there's just such long lines and just the breath control involved. You've really got to be on your breath when you approach this stuff. Um, I, I find I really enjoy uh, working on a Shakespeare play because so much of it will be revealed to me if I simply meet the text. Even if I don't know a particularly a particular emotional journey of a character, I know that if I meet uh, the iambic pentameter and notice when it uh, becomes a trochaic sort of meter, which indicates to me that there's an emotional thing happening, or I meet the consonants, which is usually where thought is um, projected, or I meet the vowels where emotion is projected. If I just technically meet those things, it will start to play me. That you just really have to get out of the way of Shakespeare and let him use you as an instrument. And oftentimes with contemporary plays, and that's not always the case because some people have a really wonderful, own, their own musical approach to writing, that if you meet that, for example, I just did a Neil Butte play, if you meet that text, it also plays you in a way. Right. But there's not as many sort of great little rules or tricks that you can learn in approaching that. Right. Uh, with Shakespeare, there's stuff that you can just follow, and it'll it'll play you. Um and when you say when you say meet it, you mean bring a certain energy or focus or an energy, a diction, a, a focus. Um, you you also have to image really really strongly because sometimes the the language is obscure or there are terms that we haven't used language we haven't used in years, and instead of changing it, uh, translating it to a different word, simply imaging very strongly as an actor, you can sort of let the audience know what the gist of that is, even if they don't quite know exactly what it is. They know what you're talking about. Meaning if you're using an extended visual metaphor or yes. um, that if you visualize that, is that what you mean by yes. imaging? Because I know that that's a David Hammond word, I think, imaging. Yeah. Um, you mean just imagine it strongly in your own imagination? Yes. I mean, if you were to talk about a very simple example, if you were to talk about a yellow dog, the more choices you make in your head about what kind of yellow dog that is, what he actually looks like, how big is he, how long is his hair, what kind of bark does he have, if you have all those really strong images in your mind as you say yellow dog, Mm -hmm. that will project to the audience in a specific way. Right. You could be talking about a a little yellow dog or a fat yellow dog. or I mean, all of that can be sort of communicated through your imaging of it very strongly. And Shakespeare really demands that. And so mentally it can be very challenging as well to really stay concentrated and not simply let the language just trip out of you. You know, there's a tendency sometimes with um, maybe inexperienced uh, actors or younger actors who haven't had the training yet where they think they want to try to make it conversational. Right. And it really doesn't work that way. You really work against yourself if you approach Shakespeare in that fashion. you can feel foolish sometimes when you athleticize the language right. literally in your mouth or in your consonants, but it will help you. You have to trust that it will actually help you get to the place you need to go. And I think, though, that that, that, that you're speaking about the imaging process of an actor is useful for people to know about because it's not just energizing the consonants and, you know, extending the vowels and uh, that sort of breath and voice work alone, that there is a sort of extra mental athleticism that's required because you're often speaking in extended metaphors or you're using an image or you're using uh, antithesis, which is a highly sort of uh, 
you know, well, mentally involved figure. Yeah. And that sort of extra mental energy will give crispness and clarity. Right. Um, and with the antithesis, I mean, those are often sophisticated ideas. And, and Shakespeare will start by telling you one side of something and then flip it to the antithesis. But if you don't have the breath control to go all the way through the entire idea, you then start to chop up the text, and that's when people start to get lost. There's this sense of breaking things down, uh, you know, uh, microcosmically, and then putting it together again, and then making bigger arcs and bigger ideas, which is actually easier for the audience to follow. And then you can start to speed it up, and it actually is easier for the audience to follow. Right. But if you just rattle it off in a very conversational, contemporary way to begin with, and haven't really dissected it first, you then end up with kind of a general mush, right? And um, and you and you find that the audience sort of checks out. If the audience is checking out during a Shakespeare play, it's, it's your fault. You think so? <laughs> well, or maybe the meal they just ate. I don't know. Sometimes it's. <laughs> I absolutely understand. Um, and I know that you've played three famous Shakespearean women. Mm. Uh, the first of those was was that Lady Macbeth. The early, you know, you said that Portia was the first, mm, mm -hmm. uh, sort of large Shakespearean part. Right. Can you just talk about um, that? Ah, uh, it was um, it was wonderful and challenging, and for me, I was sort of learning a lot of new things all at once. Um, Certain choices were dictated by the director. In fact, in the final audition, um, Barry Edelstein said there were certain things I had to do or he couldn't hire me, and I had to agree to do those things in the show. And what were they? One was uh, in the trial scene. He said, you, you must get to the point where you throw Shylock to the ground. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't want to now, three weeks from now, have you say, you know, I really can't do that, or I, it doesn't warrant that, or I can't do that, or... He said, I have to know that you will be able to do that and that you agree to do that before I can hire you. So um, it's always a combination of, you know, what the director wants, what you feel instinctually, it all coming together. I mean, it's such a, uh, you know, <laughs> Difficult. a lot of elements come together. Absolutely. And did that just permanently color how you had to play the part? Uh, I mean, it's a very, it's a classic difficulty in directing that play um, that, a lot of directors feel and a lot of actors feel that is in terms of how much you judge the um, Venetians or right. the uh, Belmontians, as it were, the mm -hmm. that is for their treatment of Shylock. You know, are they good people? Are they bad people? Mm -hmm. Did that did did something like that overdetermine? Um, well, I don't think so much it was that that gesture in the play. Um, I know that Barry wanted to also in the final act, Act Five, to to darken the tone, mm -hmm. and uh, and in some ways that was difficult to do because structurally, and this may sound weird to some people, but structurally, The Merchant of Venice is a comedy, right. and uh, for whatever you may think of that idea. The language kind of tells you that um, there are several jokes in the final act, and and we were doing sort of an experiment where we were sort of trying to go against that. And, and, and it's funny because if you try to go against what Shakespeare wants you to do, I mean, it's an arm wrestling thing and he often wins. Mm -hmm. um, we couldn't squelch laughter that, that perhaps Barry had wanted us to squelch. Did you want to? Did he want to? Yeah. Um, and maybe in some ways make, making the Venetians a little more sympathetic. But in a way, I think we had to give in to the fact that 
that that whole comedic aspect of the final act is shows another sort of calloused side of them. Or I, I'm not sure. I mean, I'd have to study this play again. It's That's been a while, and and it's always been a dilemma. And I know that a lot of directors say that every director should do at least one production of Merchant of Venice, but find that they usually just want to do the one because it is so challenging. Well, I did a I did a production, a very small sort of studio production with graduate students at New at New York University, and I really loved it. I have to say, and found it very shaded. Um, and complicated, more complicated than one may expect when you say the word comedy. Uh, and certainly tonally, Shylock takes the play and the trial scene in particular takes the play to a very severe place, mm -hmm. if, whether it's dark or use that sort of language about it. I found it just very severe and strong uh, and serious because it does feel like the stakes rise quite high. Um, but my approach to the to the final act was that while I find it very shaded and shadowy, mm -hmm. uh, I also find that the comedy, as the comedy often does work in Shakespeare's fifth acts, does do some healing mm -hmm. or work towards healing a breach that you feel has been opened up in the play by the trial scene and by mm -hmm. uh, everybody's intransigence. Um, and anyway, that's another conversation. Yes. But. Um, but also, uh, Shakespeare's kind of um, uh, an expert at making some of the, the darker themes of a play more palatable in a way because he gives you those little comedic spurts to sort of alleviate some of the some of the tension, so that in some ways you're be able, you're being able to be fed more mm -hmm. tragedy because you're able to laugh on occasion, right. and those little sort of safety valves of letting out energy is kind of what he's so fabulous at. In in the heat of something very tragic, something very funny can happen. Just as it is in life. Yes. <laughs> And uh, you played Lady Macbeth out at the... Um... Uh, Shakespeare Theater of New Jersey under uh, uh, Bonnie Monty. She's the artistic director, but she also directed that production. Right. And that was very interesting. We, our, uh, our witches were, at one point, became about 20 of them on the stage in dark hoods, and it was quite scary, actually. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the witches were actually very beautiful women initially, very seductive. The idea that evil can actually look kind of delicious at first, and how it can uh, mutate into something very, very negative. Right. I don't know if you'll remember clearly enough, but one one interesting movement in that play that I've noticed actually just sort of recently is that at the beginning of the play, Lady Macbeth, you feel sort of leading the way into the darkness, into the savagery, into the violence, and into mm -hmm. the uh, evil. But at some point, in sort of around the, the midway point, Macbeth himself sort of excels her or pulls ahead of her mm -hmm. when he gives that speech about I am so far stepped in, mm -hmm. uh, it were as tedious to return as right. go further. Right. And it's interesting that he doesn't snap, and mm -hmm. she does. I mean, she really does go crazy. Well, I guess my theory on that, I mean, that's where I saw the fulcrum of the piece is when she actually gets the blood on her hands. For me, that's the moment of 
you know, she's been the cheerleader on the sidelines going, go, baby, go, and do this and do that. But has she ever really been out in the battlefield? Has she ever really seen blood? Has she ever really had blood on her own hands? And that moment of actually feeling that man's hot blood on her own hands, I see as sort of the turning point. And that, that Macbeth becomes actually more bloodthirsty in, in an interesting way. Right. And in a way that the coupledom starts to break down and he takes off. And that's partly also what makes her go under is that no longer are they a team going forward. But she's had this little schism in her psyche because of dealing with the reality of, of, of murder and death. And he continues to go on having been a... a a warrior and slit somebody from what is it from nave to chap or whatever the right. line is <laughs> i mean he's been out there doing it yes and there is that moment actually when he's ordered the the murder of banquo and she says what have you done and he says you don't need to know about it right. that he does start to like leave you say behind. sort of leave the couple right. um, i really enjoyed playing that role i mean it's it's uh very full and very fun and um I just enjoyed the whole kind of arc of that character. And, of course, the, the mad scene is a lot of fun to, to play around <laughs> with and find your own way through. And there's a fair amount of comedy. I mean, it does sort of sort of veer towards, I don't know, the grotesque, but also there's enjoyment of their wickedness, especially mm. early in the play. Mm. Yes. You, yeah. And I think the audience sort of yeah enjoys that part of it, too. It's that thing again where something very evil can look kind of fun and kind of sexy. Right. And then it turns on you. So the audience is actually being duped into the same idea. Cleopatra. Mm-hmm. You just did this very recently. You just closed about six weeks ago. Yeah, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How was that? I love playing Cleopatra. <laughs> it's my second time. Right. I did it at the Guthrie uh, for Mark Lemos um, five years ago or so. And it was wonderful to revisit it and also um, do it in a very different environment. I mean, the Guthrie was an 1,800-seat house. A lot of it was about projection and right. all that. And and this was in a 200-seat house, which had a certain intimacy to it, which was really fun to be able to have that language in my body already and then to really kind of um, kind of distill it and, and, and see how sort of naturalistic I could be with it. And was there a difference in a major difference in interpretation of the part that is from you? Did you find that? Um, I think just maybe just more life experience, being a little older, probably brought a little something to it. Um, mm, somehow maybe being more confident in in the different colors that she possesses. You know, um, right. it's interesting. Uh, you know, she's described as a woman of infinite variety. So right. you start there and go, okay, <laughs> how am I going to find that? But as Judy Dench said, she had the same concerns. And I think Peter Hall said to her, you know, yes, she has all these colors, but you don't have to play them all at the same time. Right. And and feeling less of an obligation to sort of be all of her all at once, all the time. And just allowing a series of things that you do to make up the character. She is this, but she's also that. She's this, but she's also that. You know, it's a it's an interesting play. I think a lot of times audience members or critics or whatever have have um, a, li- a little bit of trouble with Cleopatra's personality in that there's an adolescent quality to her as far as her romantic ideals or right. and and I've always wondered like somehow in the language you you almost always feel like a teenager as you have these sort of romantic fights with Antony. 
But it's partly when when you look back at the times that she was growing up in, you know, when you're also a very sheltered but royal human being, often you're sheltered from reality in a, in a very interesting way. Mm-hmm. You live in this sort of environment that's not real. And in some ways, your development as a person may be stunted in certain areas of your life. You know, when you're given a lot of power, when you're given, we see this with, you know, celebrities that have a lot of someone like Michael Jackson or something getting a lot of attention or power early on. And how does that permutate through life? And I think Cleopatra actually possesses some of that quality. Right. Now, it's, I mean, it's a, a question about her character a lot of the time is whether, well, it goes to her sincerity. That is how in control is she or out of control is she at any given time? Because mm-hmm. there is a moment before Antony's entrance in the, the second or the third scene of the play, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, when she's talking to Charmian about how to deal with men. Mm-hmm. And she says, if he's sad, tell him I'm dancing. Right. You just somehow create a picture of yourself that's basically false, but uh-huh. is is going to do the most work on him as a member of the opposite sex. So there's a sort of early picture of her as being in control of some of this variety. Right. But within the playing of it, how much of that did you find? Because what follows is a very tempestuous scene between the two, between Antony and Cleopatra. What follows that moment of her advising Charmian? Uh, It's an argument. Um, My feeling was that... uh, that she felt that as long as she could keep arguing with him, he wouldn't leave. As long as she can keep him engaged in this this dialogue, he mm-hmm. will not go out the door. And going out the door meant a lot back then. We couldn't like call each other on our cell phone in five <laughs> minutes and make up. And if we had a fight, I may not hear a, get a letter from him for two weeks. I mean, these kind of uh, it, we couldn't patch it up very quickly. So the more I could sort of make it a, a, a game to the death. In whatever uh, manipulation she's doing, I think she gets caught up in her own manipulation. By the end of the scene, she sort of collapses and basically says, you know, I really don't, you know, don't leave me, daddy, basically. (laughs) You know, it kind of gets down to that. But somehow I think she gets caught up in her own drama. And in playing that drama, it plays her. There's like another layer. Shakespeare's playing the actress. The character's playing herself. But she she, she plays something to the nth degree... Cleopatra as the actress, which then convinces herself, right. and before you know it, she's having a real feeling. So it's multi, multi-layered, and sometimes I think it's hard to see through all that. Oh, it's impossible. And, I mean, I think that, and and to some degree, that's one of the subjects of the play. That is our own obscurity to ourselves in that way. That is yes. That the question between in control and out of control is oftentimes an unanswerable one. Um, And in there, in the play, it's sort of demonstrated over and over again that the two of them have have feelings for each other and control over each other that exceeds their grasp. What's the word? That is, it goes in and out of their their control. As as with all relationships, Mm -hmm. I think. I mean, there was a quote, I can't remember who said it, but they felt that the play was about that the ambivalence and ambiguity of love inevitably gives in to the intensity and authenticity of love. And often that moment happens in death. 
you can say, you know what, I'm leaving you. I can't stand him. I'm out of here. I don't know if I like him so much. I don't know. I mean, I love this, but I hate this about him. You're, human beings are very ambivalent, very ambiguous about, I think, the main object of their love, which is kind of the dilemma of life. Right. But in the end, when you're faced with diseases or faced with death, my God, the intensity and oh my God, I could never love anyone else. That all of that comes to the fore when you're when you're dealing with death. And it's an interesting experience sitting in the audience, and I had a great one watching you do that, especially that fourth and fifth act of Antony and Cleopatra when when she she finally gives into. Uh, her real true feeling about him well, was able to express that feeling about yes. him? Well, yeah. I mean, she has that wonderful yeah. speech. But yes, I had a great time watching you in the fourth and fifth act of Antony and Cleopatra because there is a moment that's hard to track from the audience when it is that she finally commits to two things. One, to Antony, finally, and two, to the fact that she's going to kill herself. And because she's throughout that fifth act, especially with Octavia Caesar in particular, playing mm -hmm. a number of levels, right? She's being strategic, and she's also being the most authentically emotional mm -hmm. in that last act. Mm -hmm. How was that to navigate? Um, in some ways, I felt that that transitional moment came as Antony dies, and she realizes what that death is. And there's a moment where the servant girls, Iris and Charmian, say something about, is Cleopatra dead? And I was reading Janet Sussman's um, sort of um, notes on the play, and she was saying often it's played that Cleopatra faints over his body and then has some kind of epiphany. And she had suggested there's no indication that she actually collapses. That, And I decided to make that choice this time where it was more like looking up at the stars and realizing the intensity of her love for Antony and that without him, she kind of has lost a motor. You know how there are people in your life that actually keep you going? Mm -hmm. Oftentimes it's a mother or something like that, and when the mother dies, that motor that drove you to succeed or just to, to drive yourself towards success is gone, and then what do you do? And I think in many ways it speaks to how importantly that male energy was in Cleopatra's life. And she tries to hang on to still being, you know, the queen, <laughs> the queen of Egypt, but in some ways that essential motor of the male energy has died, and she realizes that, and the, and, and the loss that she does suffer there. Um, there's also a lot of discussion about, you know, her love for her country versus her love for Antony. And, you know, from a feminist point of view, you can really have both. But I guess always people always want you to be able to choose one or the other. Right. If she really loves her country, then she's manipulating Antony. If she loves Antony, then she's not really a politician and she doesn't care. You know, it can be both. Right. It, it can be both. <laughs> and that uh, that character can contain both of those ideas and both of those desires to, you know, Absolutely. No, I think that that's a truth about Shakespeare in general, uh, but is most um, is really extremely exampled in Antony and Cleopatra, and Cleopatra in particular. That is that people and that life are not either or; 
that mm-hmm. they almost always are both and. Yes. And it's a distinction that's very difficult for theater people uh, sometimes because we want to make choices. We want to mm-hmm. give interpretations and we want to make statements that are sort of personal to us. And as you said before about, and I, I think about, was thinking about what you said about the language playing you to some degree. It's not about that we're empty vessels, you know, that the language mm-hmm. is playing upon. But if you embrace all of those colors and all of those aspects of these individuals, these characters, uh, you'll find all of them, you know, it will be an exciting experience for the audience. Um, and to some degree, will prevent them from judging these people finally. And isn't that part of what drama is for on some level? That is that preventing people from accepting simple answers. That is, that's why we have multiple voiced pieces of theater. And in Antony and Cleopatra, you have characters who themselves are multiple and to make one choice or the uh, over mm-hmm. the other uh, can serve to diminish the experience for the actor and for the audience, I think, as well. It can make it easier on some level. Yeah. If you judge them, if you say, say for Portia, that, you know, she's a terrible racist anti-Semite. Right. It can sort of make it easier to sort of accept the play or something. But then as an audience member, you can distance yourself from that person and say, oh, I'm nothing like that. Right. When in fact, you know, these more difficult questions live in all of us. Right. And you can say, I'm not a racist. And before you know it, you found little racist things that you've done that you didn't even, weren't even aware of. Right. I mean, it, run, it can run very, very deep. And if you dis, you know, detach yourself from Portia because you go, oh, she's a bad person then you're no longer looking at yourself either. Right. And that Shakespeare is a wonderful way of showing a mirror to the audience and saying, you know what, she's this and she's this, and so are you. Right. And, um, you know, Cleopatra loves Antony to death, and at times she can be a very castrating alpha dog, you know. <laughs> when it comes to who's the alpha energy in the room, at times it's her. And that's not always a very comfortable place for audience members to live. I find when you're playing really strong women, I find this. I found the same sort of response sometimes when I was playing Hedda Gobbler. Right. That if a woman uh, presumes to have a certain amount of male energy at her disposal, whatever you want to call that, it can be challenging for people to to like her. Well, I've I've often thought of the two roles uh, in tandem. Actually, that is that there is the same sort of mercurial. Mm-hmm. Uh, aspect to both of those characters, Hedda and to Cleopatra. And right. like you say, a very aggressive energy, a very strong sexual drive, and clear, right. sex- and unapologetic sexual drive. And also a very ambiguous, um, the audiences can feel very ambivalent about the, or should feel very ambivalent about both characters. At yes. times be completely in love, and at times be completely appalled. And I think that's what is, what's been created. Uh, in that final scene of Antony and Cleopatra, as you say, after he's died and you, f- you felt that what came clear to you was the intensity of her emotion for Antony, mm-hmm. and she becomes, on uns- what she says, I be- I'm marble constant. There's nothing of the woman in me now, right? Mm-hmm. She- 
you feel that what she's constant about is that she's now fully committed to this intensity of emotion. Well, that all, but also that she does not want Octavius Caesar to to win in the end. In a way of not allowing him to win is to take her own life. Right. That she will not be uh, paraded through the streets of Rome um, as some sort of trophy. That that would be the biggest uh, dis- dishonoring of her being in her country possible, and the nobility of her choice to commit suicide, and the fact that her servant girls would also do that because they are her right-hand women. They would go with her. Um, it's a way of winning, and uh, Darko was very cl- Darko Trezhnek, our director, was very clear about that there was a positive drive in the last act that would be unexpected. You'd think, oh my God, I'm going towards suicide. I have to play all this angst or something. Right. It's actually the opposite. It's some sort of transcendence that she's looking forward to. And and excitement. And in many ways, here's a woman who has experienced everything in life, everything and everybody. <laughs> and what has she not experienced? Death. And that that is going to be a sensual experience too. And Shakespeare writes it as such. I mean, this the man who brings the, the snake, the asp, there's a sensual kind of connotation to that scene, you right. know. And, and this the final phallic symbol is going to kill her. And that it's going to be a sensual experience and the final description of it, that it's gentle and that it's easy. And I mean, I mean, I make the, make the choice that I see Antony literally see him and I'm able to go to him and that it's a, that I win. I always felt like I won. Oh, absolutely. I never felt like I lost. In no, the end, absolutely. Really. And I thought that that was really beautifully realized both by, by you and by Darko in that last, in that final scene, uh, that sense that she was going back to Antony that she was going to win over Octavius Caesar, mm-hmm. and that she also had a sense that she was going to have a place in the story, as someone says, you know, Barbas, I think, says, um, that she was going to ascend to herself, that, that mm-hmm. is to become Cleopatra with a capital C <laughs> or whatever yeah. it is. Um, and it was quite beautifully um, recapitulated in the staging of it, that is, that yes. there was a sort of vision of her, both on the um, sort of ship across the sticks the with Charon, yeah. mm-hmm. and also that she was back at Sidness on the barge. Right. When she, when Antony first saw her, it's right. quite beautiful, and I think that is certainly in Shakespeare that he's showing you someone turn into a legend, a mm-hmm. permanent legend that they're becoming this piece of art, this... And also becoming the best part of herself, in a way, really becoming noble mm-hmm. in doing that, you know? That there's a beauty. That, I think, is a complicated couple for audiences to accept because they're so self-centered, so self-involved. I mean, battles are happening, people are dying, and they're all about, you know... Anti-Cleopatra, you mean? Yeah, that it's hard to sort of get behind them because they're <laughs> leaving all this carnage in their, you know, in their path, and, right? And and yet they're kind of beautiful losers in a way, right. you know. They're they're you know um, 
well, I'm not going to name any names, but celebrities that we look up to who end up being terrible alcoholics and drug addicts, and you, and yet you kind of want to keep believing in them, but they keep doing stuff that drives you crazy, and right. you know, then when they die, you know, Larry King has five hours on them, and it's just just strange love hate thing that happens, I think, with people of that stature and celebrity. And you think in the last moment she. There's these wonderful humanizing events that happen towards the end where she kind of gets off her high horse and actually opens her eyes and sees other human beings. She sees the man who brings the asp and says, what poor an instrument may do a noble deed. Uh, perhaps, I don't know, people can make different choices about that, whether it's the asp being the tool of her demise or is it the man that's mm -hmm. brought it, this little beggar man. Or uh, Dolabella comes in and says, He's going to lead you. Uh, Caesar's going to leave you, lead you in triumph, and she says thanks. And as I said, um, that colloquial language of saying thanks instead of thank you is so simple. And I, and I know that in people who are not used to saying thank you, that it's very difficult to say it. There's something that's really against their very being. <laughs> and I wanted to play it that that she was saying thank you to another person for the first time in her life, and she was becoming more of a human being. And when she says goodbye to Charmian and Iris before she takes the snake and she kisses them both on the lips and, and realizes in some ways their feelings about the situation, she gets outside of herself by the end of the play and becomes more of a human being instead of the goddess Isis that she'd always sort of long to be mm -hmm. or even put on the habiliments and the costume of it and pretended to be at one point in some ceremony, that actually she begins to realize her own humanity and starts to see other people for the first time. That's remarkable. I've never, I've never heard that. And I think that's, that is quite true. And I think that thanks is, is a beautiful example of it. Um, and I would love to read some of that conversation with Dolabella. Um, Stephen Scabell has just walked in, so maybe we can ask him if he'll read with you. Because it's a remarkable scene between a couple of exchanges between Dolabella and Cleopatra. It's someone that she's never met before, mm -hmm. but suddenly she's had some sort of instant rapport with. Mm -hmm. Some sort of intimacy occurs with, with Dolabella. And maybe... Before we end, we can get you to read that with us. Sure. Great. Most noble empress, you have heard of me? I cannot tell. Assuredly, you know me. No matter, sir, what I've heard or known. You laugh when boys or women tell their dreams. It's not your trick. I understand not, madam. I dreamt there was an emperor, Antony. Oh, such another sleep that I might see, but such another man. If it might please ye. His face was as the heavens, and therein stuck a sun and moon, which kept their course and lighted the little O, the earth. Most sovereign creature. His legs bestrid the ocean. His reared arm crested the world. His voice was propertied as all the tuned spheres, and that to friends, that when he meant to quail and shake the orb, he was as rattling thunder. For his bounty, there was no winter int, and autumn twas, 
that grew the more by reaping. His delights were dolphin-like. They showed his back above the element they lived in. In his livery walked crowns and crownets. Realms and islands were as plates dropped from his pocket. Cleopatra. Think you there was or might be such a man as this I dreamt of? Gentle madam, no. You lie up to the hearing of the gods. But if there be, nor ever were, one such, it's past the size of dreaming. Nature wants stuff to vie strange forms with fancy, yet to imagine an Antony were nature's peace gainst fancy, condemning shadows quite. Hear me, good madam. Your loss is as yourself, great, and you bear it as answering to the weight. Would I might never or take pursued success, but I do feel, by the rebound of yours, a grief that smites my very heart at root. I thank you, sir. Know you what Caesar means to do with me. I am loath to tell you what I would you knew. Nay, pray you, sir. Though he be honorable. He'll lead me, then, in triumph. Madam, he will. I know it. I tell you this. Caesar, through Syria, intends his journey, and within three days, you, with your children, will he send before. Make your best use of this. I have performed your pleasure and my promise. Dolabella, I shall remain your debtor. I, your servant. Adieu, good queen. I must attend on Caesar. Farewell. And thanks. Now, Iris, what thinkst thou? Thou, an Egyptian puppet, shall be shown in Rome as well as I. Mechanic slaves with greasy aprons, rules, and hammers shall uplift us to the view. In their thick breaths, rank of gross diet shall we be enclouded and forced to drink their vapor. The gods forbid. Nay, it is most certain, Iris. Saucy lictors will catch at us like strumpets, and scald rhymers ballad us out of tune. The quick comedians extemporally will stage us and present our Alexandrian revels. Antony shall be brought drunken forth, and I shall see some squeaking Cleopatra boy my greatness in the posture of a whore. Thank you very much, Lila. That was beautiful. And you're absolutely right about that. Thanks. It is often in those monosyllables that he really does sort of uh, as I heard Adrian Noble say, many of Shakespeare's holes in ones are monosyllabic. And <laughs> that thanks at the end of that extraordinary passage uh, is... Kind of says it all, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. There's a clarity and an intimacy. Uh, and simplicity. Yes. Yeah. And you said you worked with uh, a yes, very Yes, we famous... had the wonderful uh, pleasure of working with Sis Barry in, uh, during our our um, preview period, and I, I so wish we had had her earlier on. Mm -hmm. um, she was so much about focusing that laser beam energy of imaging very strongly, but also the thinking. She said, I want to know what you're thinking. I don't care so much about what you're feeling. The feeling will just happen, but what you're thinking is so important. And, and to make those thoughts very clear, and also the shift in as you said, the antithesis and all that, where those shifts take place. And she had all these wonderful exercises for us to sit in chairs and actually move to another chair as you change your thought and then move to another chair. And 
um, exercises where you would do scenes that would help you have, an, uh, for example, an intimacy with Antony that's played out in front of, the, of her servants. How, how do you do that? How do you keep your peripheral vision sort of going as you're being intimate with somebody but also knowing the effect that it's having on other people? Those sorts of exercises, and I found her invaluable and really enjoyed my time. Well, her name her. comes up a lot. She was in yes. residence at the Royal Shakespeare Company for many, many years. She mm -hmm. was actually, I think, the first resident voice coach that they had come in and, uh, and, and actually have a position at the RSC. And I think she's still emeritus or something there, but uh, right. she's an extraordinary teacher and she has touched right. a lot of people's. I also spent uh, just a few hours with uh, a man who actually works at RSC uh, these days, Rob Clare. Mm -hmm. I had the pleasure of having an afternoon with him. And I guess the, the, the biggest thing that came out of that afternoon for me was that he said often when you're doing Shakespeare, people think you're finding the images, but ultimately you find the perfect one because Shakespeare is so beautiful, and that you find this perfect image and you say it. And he said, work with the idea that language is never enough that you pluck this image, but it's still not enough. And so you go on to say something else, and it's still not quite enough. And it creates this kind of energy of need and want and desire and, and grasping for that idea, an, an added layer of that, which I found interesting. I'd never quite heard it said that way before. And I found that helpful as well, that you're never resting on your laurel, laurels and simply speaking beautiful language, that it's a, it's a constant searching for something. You've been listening to Shakespeare Talks, brought to you by the Shakespeare Society and PlayShakespeare.com. Shakespeare Talks. <laughs>